Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all those whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the artifacts, the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithradath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400 all these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word to our hearts and to our lives. We thank you for it, and we pray that you would minister to us this morning. May we hear your voice, and may we follow where you lead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Israel, specifically the southern tribes here, found itself in a bit of a mess. They'd been taken into captivity by Babylon. And they have spent some time in captivity until Babylon was overtaken by another kingdom. And God raised up a pagan king named Cyrus. And through that pagan king Cyrus declared that Israel could go back home and could rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. Israel was in a mess. They were in a foreign land. And not only that, their own land that they had left behind was in a mess. The temple was in ruins. Their city was destroyed. The walls had been torn down. Even the foundations of the temple were damaged. But Israel 
was in a mess of their own making. Because it was because of their disobedience, because of their neglect of God's covenant, that Israel was in captivity in the first place. You'll remember that the northern tribes were first taken into captivity by Assyria, the great world power before Babylon. And it was some time later that the Lord used Babylon to sweep across Assyria and become the new world power. Those northern tribes lost their identity. They were, they were taken into captivity never to return as themselves. But they were absorbed into, swallowed up in the Assyrian and Babylonian cultures. But the southern tribes, Judah, they remained to some wavering degree faithful to the Lord. They, they had times of turning to Him, returning to Him, and falling back. And so God relented until eventually their sin was so great, their breaking of covenant was so great that God used the Babylonians as a source of judgment on His own people in Judah and took them into captivity. But God kept through Judah a remnant a remnant of people who remained faithful to Him. They suffered along with the rest. They suffered with them. In fact, they interceded for their nation, even interceding for their new pagan homes. And God remained faithful and brought them back home, even using a pagan king like Cyrus. And not only that, Cyrus even paid the bill. You may have our gold and our silver. We'll get all of your artifacts that, that Nebuchadnezzar has taken from the Lord's temple. We'll, we'll get them out of our God's temples and we'll return them back to Jerusalem with you. And not only that, your neighbors will help. They'll provide gold and silver. They'll provide whatever livestock you need. They'll provide and meet your needs. We look around us virtually every day. If you turn on the news, if you open the newspaper, if you pull up your Facebook feed, if you check Twitter, if you just turn on your computer and you've got pop-ups telling you what's happening in the world today, we cannot escape the fact that we're in an awful mess. Our culture is in a mess. We don't know up from down. We don't know left from right. We can't see 10 feet in front of us. And everything's happening so fast. Everything is moving so quickly. We're bombarded with the mess. But the mess we're in is a mess of our own making. We've done this to ourselves. We've invited this upon ourselves. I remember as a kid, the, the old adage that my parents used to share with me, you made your bed, now you're going to lie in it. It didn't seem so fun or cute. But as I get older, I realize, wow, there, there's an unmistakable truth in that. We create messes for ourselves that we must then have to deal with. I say this is a mess of our own making, but 
before we move on, is this, in fact, a mess of our own making? It might sound unfair and unrealistic. After all, you know, we're good Christian people. How do we get ourselves in this? Are we responsible? Well, the mess that we're in is certainly the fault of our culture. There's no doubt in that. And by culture, I'm not talking just about politics. I'm talking about culture. I, I think it originated with him. I often attribute it to, uh, to Chuck Colson. I believe it was him. He might have been quoting someone else. said, politics is downstream from culture. And so when we see what's been happening for the last you know, couple of years on the news, most of it seems political, but that's all a result of what's been going on in our culture for some time now. The rot that we see has been a long time coming. You could even argue that this has been brewing and simmering and smoldering for the better part of a century. We have been dismantling ourselves. We have been destroying the foundations that undergird our culture and that undergird our lives. We have been systematically and slowly destroying ourselves So sure, it's the fault of our culture. But it's also the fault of the church to a great extent. Because the church is guilty of compromise. In the early creeds of the church, we're given four adjectives that describe the church. Especially the Nicene Creed. The church is one, it is holy, it is Catholic, meaning worldwide, and it is apostolic. Think about just two of those. We are called to be a holy people. And how grossly unholy the church in many sectors and in many ways undoubtedly is. We're called to be apostolic, to be faithful to the teachings of the apostles, to be faithful to what's been handed down to us in Scripture. And it seems like we've all but abandoned it completely. Quite frankly, when it comes to some issues, not just the culture, but the church, we don't give a rip what the scriptures say. Because that was a different time and a different place. A different reality. And so all around us, again, not just a commentary on politics... Not just a commentary on culture, but a commentary on God's church. We are guilty of compromise. We're guilty of transgression. That sounds like a a high-fluting technical term. You find the term transgression all throughout the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. You find it on the mouths of the prophets, on the mouths of the, the, uh, uh, the psalmists. Transgression is about covenant breaking. We might say, but pastor, America is not God's covenant people. And I would agree. No, America isn't God's covenant people. Modern day America isn't 
a one-to-one comparison to ancient Israel. But who is, is the church. Because we are God's covenant people. That's what happens in baptism. We covenant ourselves to God and to Him alone and to His church, His people. We give ourselves in that covenantal rite of baptism. We exchange vows and we declare Him to be our Lord who has brought us up out of the waters, who has brought us up out of sin and death. And we declare ourselves to be His unwaveringly and uncompromisingly forever. And the church is indeed guilty of compromise. We are indeed guilty of transgression. We may not deny our baptism, but we certainly don't live according to it. We may not wholeheartedly reject the teaching of the apostles, but we certainly look down our noses to it. But again, we might look around us and say, who, me? No, not us. We're the remnant. We're the good guys. We're the ones that have remained faithful. We're the ones who haven't offered that pinch of incense to Caesar. We're the ones who have remained firm and have not compromised ourselves, have not transgressed God's law. But let's not fool ourselves or give ourselves a pass in piety. Even if we do not think that this is directly our own doing, certainly we can all agree that we could have done more to avoid the condition of our culture. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And so if the, if the earth begins to rot, it's because the salt has not preserved. You are the light of the world. And if the world is living in darkness and that darkness continues to close in on the world, then certainly it's because enough light has not been shining. Perhaps we have hidden our light under the basket. Perhaps, perhaps we have walled up that city that's on a hill, which is not America, but is the church. Perhaps we've protected ourselves and fortified ourselves and hunkered down and and just assume that whatever happens to the world will happen to it. We could have done more. And we see a mess all around us. And notice the posture of the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets never looked down their noses at Israel or the nations. The prophets call for repentance. And the prophets, who were righteous men and women, the prophets begin that repentance with themselves. Isaiah, the greatest of the prophets, Woe is me, I am undone. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. Daniel, who was serving in a pagan administration in a pagan land, interceded, we have sinned against you. You read throughout the book of Daniel and you find nowhere is Daniel himself accused of some gross sin. He's not even accused of white lies or those things we might consider to be little sins. Daniel seems, for all intents and purposes, to be a faithful and upright covenant keeper. He is faithful to God even to his own hurt. He gets thrown in the lion's den. His his buddies and comrades get tossed into the fiery furnace. We might think of those as childhood stories or things we teach our kids at VBS or church camp. But those are are reminders and symbols and, and statues erected to remind us That God's people can be faithful. And in their faithfulness, they can intercede. And in their faithfulness, they can repent for the sake of their people. The prophets all throughout the Old Testament, not once thought, well, look, this isn't my fault. This is y'all's fault. So y'all figure it out. Look, this isn't the church's problem, what's going on in our culture. It's the culture's problem. They're getting what they deserve. They've made their bed. They can lay in it. Lie in it should be what you say, but I don't know that anybody says you lie in it. But we're in a mess of our own making. And you know what? The mess we're in will take a while to clean up. This past week, earlier in the week, it might have, I think it was Monday, we were doing a family devotion. We, we, we were doing a family de- devotion after dinner and um, we're reading about how they build skyscrapers. You know, the first thing they do when they're building skyscrapers is they take months and months to dig down. Wait a minute, we're building a skyscraper. That thing's got to be way up there. What are we doing trying to take earth out from under it? But they dig down. Because before you can build that big, beautiful skyscraper, you've got to prepare for the foundation. And building a foundation means you start digging down into the earth. You do that hard and boring and time-consuming and unfruitful work of laying the foundation. The mess we're in will take a while to clean up. Because the foundation must be laid. And foundations take time. You can't just assess the problem and say, all right, now what do we do about it? 
That's often our response. Guys, you're with me on this. Most of us guys, we see a problem, we want to know, how do I fix it? What do I do about it? We joke about it even with, um, about our wives, you know, those of us that are married, we joke about, uh, okay, you're telling me a problem, do you want me to fix it or do you want me to just listen? I'm finding as Imogene's getting older, I'm having to do that even with my daughter. Like, am I just listening here? Am I playing passive counselor or active counselor? Do I need to be pitching some ideas or solving something? What am I? What's expected of me? But the mess that we're in doesn't have a quick fix. It doesn't have a a short solution. It'll take a while to clean up because the foundation must be laid. And foundations take time. Israel found themselves in need of not just returning to Jerusalem and resuming worship as was. Not just, all right, we've gotten here, it's it's ready to go. They found themselves returning to Jerusalem and encountering a city and a temple whose walls were destroyed, whose buildings were crushed, and whose foundation needed restoring and rebuilding. Cleaning up the mess will take a toll on us It'll cost us. It'll take work. It'll take sacrifice. It'll take dedication, persistence, and relentlessness. Because the work to which God calls us as being salt of the earth and as being light in the world, as being His church, His city that's set on a hill, it is work that doesn't end. It is a cleanup project that will take its toll on us. There will be resistance. You read about resistance throughout Ezra's prophecy, throughout the chapters of his book, you read that there are those who rise up to resist. And as the church of God, as we try to clean up the mess that we found ourselves in, there'll certainly be resistance. This is spiritual war, after all, and therefore there is no safety. And there will often be the crippling pressure to compromise oh come on you don't want to return to that do you oh come on you don't expect people to live like that do you oh come on that type of lifestyle that sort of that sort of ethic that's from days of old we've progressed beyond that we've gotten past those quaint expectations 
in cleaning up the mess, it might disappoint us as well. It might disappoint us because as you find in Ezra chapter 3, even as you lay the foundation and even as you begin to restore the temple, it's not what we remember and therefore it's not what we expected. The Word says they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice. When the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes, yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout for joy or the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. What God is going to do through His church as the salt of the earth and the light of the world as that city that is set on a hill, what God is going to do with His church in the years to come, we do not know. We do not know what to expect. But it probably won't be what we remember about the great age of Christendom where the church was the center of culture where no one dared do anything that crossed was at cross with the biblical ethic. A couple of thoughts that I, on that note that I think it's careful for us to remember as the church. Do not expect the world to behave like the church. After all, it's the world. Don't expect unchristians to live wholesome Christian lives. But equally, do not excuse the church to behave like the world. We cannot and must not compromise ourselves. Now, as the salt and as the light, are we calling men and women, are we calling culture back? Yes. But we shouldn't be surprised when sinners live like sinners. That does not undermine the transformation of our lives in Christ. In fact, it gives quite obvious contrast, which can be helpful. Do not expect the world to have the same values and priorities as the church. For after all, it is the world. It is not the church. But equally, do not excuse the church to have the same values and priorities as the world. And to our shame, when we look around ourselves... In our culture, 
we find that the church and its values and its priorities are strikingly similar to those values, those priorities, and those identities of the world. But there's some good news. I don't have all the answers for you this morning. I haven't even barely begun to scratch the surface of the problem. That's what we're going to be doing for these next several weeks. But there is some good news. It's not all bad news. The good news is that Israel's return from captivity was unprecedented and unrepeated in the ancient world. It was what we would call a miracle. There was not a single other nation, not one, that was taken into exile in the ancient world that ever was preserved and left that exile. They all were absorbed in to the powerhouses. They all lost themselves and their souls and their identities in those foreign cultures. And what that tells us is that God is able to do the impossible. We might turn on the news and quickly turn it off and think, it's impossible. It doesn't end. The world has gone crazy. We might think some of our own friends have gone crazy. Especially if we're on social media. But God is able to do the impossible. God is still able to do the miraculous. And it's time for the church to return to the Lord and rebuild what's been devastated. We must return to Him and rebuild an undivided devotion to Him. That He is our Lord. He is the dictator of our lives. He is the one who has given us life. He is the one who has redeemed our lives. And He is the one for whom and by whom and in whom we will live our lives. Undividedly. Uncompromisingly. Unwaveringly. And in doing so, we can rebuild our self-understanding. Our understanding of who we are as made in God's image. Our understanding of what it means to be a person made in His image. What biblical identity looks like. What biblical sexuality looks like. What life is to look like. But it'll take repentance before Him. It'll take us humbling ourselves, not hiding behind piety and saying, Lord, we as a church have failed. 
Yeah, we might be able to say, yeah, but it wasn't me, and I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. Yeah, but it wasn't us. I mean, we've been pretty good. There's no room for that in the Scriptures. There's simply an invitation to come and to intercede, to come and repent. Come before Him and say, Lord, we've made a mess, and we need You to enable us and to strengthen us, to give us wisdom to clean it up. Because we can't do it on our own. We can't restore our culture on our own. We can't call the whole church around the world to repentance on our own. But we can do our little part and we can trust the Lord for the miracle. And it will take a desire for Him only. Is He the one desire of your life and mine? Does every other desire in our lives come out of our desire for Him? Or are there competing desires? Compromising desires? His desire for us is that we would be wholly His. That we would begin that great work of returning to Him and rebuilding what is devastated. And it's time to return and rebuild. Let's pray.